Every once in a good while, a man or a woman stands up before an audience and gives a speech so moving, so powerful, that it lodges in the collective consciousness of mankind. Now, being one who part of my job is to speak before an audience every week and realizing in all truthfulness and humility that you probably forget most of what I say by Wednesday, if not five minutes afterwards, I know how hard that is. And so when it happens, when something lodges in our collective consciousness, you know something important has happened. Whether it be Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or Winston Churchill's call to arms with the phrase, never surrender, whether it be Martin, Luther's King's, uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech or Susan B. Anthony's call for the woman's right to vote in 1873, a good speech will call people to a higher good and a greater fulfillment of our human potential. One of my favorite speeches that just kind of makes your blood start to boil and you start to get excited like you want to just tackle something and conquer something. No, it's not the freedom speech from Braveheart. It is the speech from Henry V as written down by Shakespeare. It's the St. Crispin's Day speech from 1415 that Henry V spoke to his troops He was trying to motivate his small group of soldiers as they entered into fierce battle, outnumbered six to one by the French at the Battle of Agincourt. You can go and watch it. There's a wonderful old movie. I can't remember if it's in the 80s or 90s, uh, but the actor that does such a wonderful job of portraying it, it's called Henry V. You can look it up online. I love this part of it. He says to his men who are looking for motivation, he says, And Crispin Crispian shall never go by. From this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Man, they don't make speeches like that anymore, do they? Great speeches ignite our hearts to action. They inspire us to be all that we can be. And they call us to a greater reality than that in which we currently exist. We have before us in Deuteronomy just such a speech. The nation of Israel, the ethnic offspring of Abraham, they stood on the verge of entering the land that God had promised them. A land both full of potential and great warfare. And it needed to be taken by confident force. And Moses had been told by God that although he had freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, although he had been the one to mediate a covenant between God and his people, he would still not enter the promised land with this new generation of Israelites. And so there on the east side of the Jordan, most likely with tears in his eyes, Moses spoke to the people of Israel and delivered a speech that is largely captured in the book we know as Deuteronomy. This morning, I want to introduce you to this amazing book and help you understand why I believe this book will be important for us as we learn to walk more closely with our Savior and King, Jesus the Christ. I want to begin by showing you a short video made by our friends in the Bible Project up in Portland that summarizes the book of Deuteronomy. So get comfortable, it's about six minutes, and then I'll jump right back in. The epic conclusion to the Torah, and spoiler alert, Moses is going to die. Now, in order to understand this book, we need to remember the story so far. So Israel has escaped from slavery in Egypt. Then they spend one year at Mount Sinai. This is where they made the covenant with God to obey all of these laws. Then they wander around the desert for 40 years before they make it to the Jordan River, which is right across from the land God promised them. They're ready to go in. This is where the book of Deuteronomy begins. And what this book is really is a speech. Moses gives these final words. It's like a pep talk to the new generation of Israel that's about to go into the land. And the speech, it's broken up into three large sections. So Moses begins the first part of the speech with a somber tone because he's highlighting Israel's rebellion and resistance, which has been going on for the last 40 years. And that sets up the rest of this opening section, which is Moses' challenge to this new generation to be different from their parents and to respond to God's grace with love and obedience. So he reminds them of the Ten Commandments, like the basics of the covenant, and then he gives them this very famous line. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, in Jewish tradition, this is called the Shema because the first Hebrew word in this line is Shema Yisrael. And this became a very important prayer in Judaism, said twice a day. And it emphasizes the Israelites' exclusive commitment to their God, the one true God who loved them and who rescued them from slavery. Right, because they're about to go into a land where people are worshiping many other gods. And Moses thinks that loyalty to the Lord, their God, is the only way to life. Now, notice these key words in the Shema, listen and love. You're going to find these words all over this opening section of the speech. The word listen in Hebrew means more than just let sound waves come into your ears. It includes the idea of responding to what you hear. So for Israel, this means responding to God's grace by obeying the laws of the covenant. And then listen is always followed by love. Yeah, so love is the true motivation for obeying the laws. Israel won't obey without love, and they don't truly love if they don't obey. So there's this tight connection between loving and listening that runs through the entire book. And so Moses tells them that if they do listen and love, they will fulfill their original calling as the family of Abraham to show all of the nations the wisdom and justice of God and so become a blessing to them. The second big section in Deuteronomy is a large block of laws and commands. And this is where the book gets its name. Deuteronomy means a second law. And it's because many of these laws we've heard before. In fact, in the first line of the book, we're told that Moses is here explaining or clarifying the laws. So he's repeating and expanding on the laws, making them relevant to this new generation. There's laws about how Israel's to worship God, laws about their leadership structure, laws about social justice, and then some more laws about their worship. Now, after all of the laws, Moses warns Israel of the consequences of their obedience or disobedience, or in his words, the blessing or the curse. If they listen and love, they will experience blessing and abundance in the land. And if they don't, there's going to be famine and plagues, and they'll be forced off their land into exile. And that brings us to the final section of his speech. Yeah, here Moses says, I set before you today life or death, blessing or curse. So choose life. But then things get really interesting because after 40 years with these people, Moses knows they're not going to obey. And so he predicts their failure and even their future exile from the promised land. And he focuses on what he thinks is the true source of the problem, that they have hard and selfish hearts. It's as if Israel is incapable of truly loving God in a way that brings about obedience. But this problem isn't unique to Israel. Yeah, in fact, Moses, when he's using this language about blessing and curse, he's tying Israel's story all the way back to all humanity's story from Genesis 1 through 3. So Adam and Eve, they were blessed by God just like Israel and given a choice to trust and obey God like Israel. And then they rebelled and brought a curse on the land like Moses knows Israel is going to do. And so these stories, they're about Israel's hard heart, but they're actually a window into the universal human condition. But Moses doesn't give up hope entirely. That's right. He says that somehow on the other side of Israel's exile, God promises to transform their heart so that one day they truly can listen and love. In the final chapters, Joshua is appointed as the new leader of Israel. And then Moses takes the entire law code. The one he just predicted Israel would break. That's right. And he puts it into the Ark of the Covenant. And then Moses hikes up to the top of a mountain so he can see the promised land from afar. And then he dies. And that's how the Torah ends. Which is a strange place to end the story. I mean, it's right there at the climax. Will they obey the laws and live faithfully in the land or not? Well, the story does continue right into Joshua, the next book of the Bible. But this is the end of the Torah, and it's been ended here for a reason. The Torah is written for people who are either outside of the land or who are still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the whole world. And so now as each generation reads the Torah, they find themselves called to hope in what Moses hoped for, a new transformed heart that one day can truly listen and love. All right, we're done with Deuteronomy. We can go on to the next book. <laughs> it's a truly wonderful summary. I'm very thankful to Tim Mackey and uh, all the folks up there for uh, what they do. But let's unpack it a bit more and a bit more slowly, shall we? That might be good. 
The first thing I want to do this morning is set the context for this book by looking at the typical questions of who, what, where, when, and why. Luckily, we can answer these questions from our text this morning just by reading it and walking through it. So let's take a look there at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Aravah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazorot, and Dizahav. It is 11 days' journey from Horev, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Edrei, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Aravah, in the hill country and in the lowland and the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So let's take a look here at the context so that we can understand it as we step into it. First, let's look at the who. It is normal in the Hebrew naming of books to use the first few words of the book. So literally it says, these are the words. Eleha Devarim is how you'd say it in Hebrew, and so the shorthand word for this book is Devarim, words. It's simply called words in the Hebrew Bible. It comes from that place where it says that Moses spoke these words. And it flows per- perfectly from the last words of Numbers 36.13, which says, these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And so, at the most basic level, this was a written account of Moses' words given to the audience of the young generation of Israelites about to step into the land of Canaan. But in scholarship over the last 150 years, many have started to ask some questions, because if you read through Deuteronomy and even the rest of the Pentateuch, you start to have some questions. How many of you have ever read the phrase where it says, Moses was the most humble man alive, and then you think to yourself, wait a minute, I thought Moses was the writer of this. You ever, you ever wonder about that? Well, the reality wasn't that Moses was this arrogant guy who thought he was humble. The reality is, is that most likely there are what are called parenthetical comments all throughout the Pentateuch. And they were written not by Moses, but by scribal authors who uh, kept and, and secured and watched over the word of God. And so what we have in front of us in the first five books of the Bible is primarily, probably 90 to 95%, the words of Moses that were originally there. But we also have later editions, as he even said in the video, where scribal authors would jump in and they would make parenthetical comments in order to help the newer generations of Israelites understand what was said. Now, for many evangelical Christians who have a wrong understanding of how the Bible came about, people freak out and they go, oh my gosh, can we trust it? If it wasn't Moses and it was some scribes, uh, what, what do we do? Well, the reality, guys, is that God's hand was still at work in this. And what we have before us is the word of God, even if it wasn't 100% written by Moses. And what we can be assured of is that the majority of what we have was the original writing and words of Moses. Now, many of the people who question this, they question it to get rid of Mosaic authorship and make us doubt the word, but we don't have any need to do that. Historically, in the Hebrew tradition, all of this, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is known as the book of Moses. It's never not been known as that. There's never been any doubt that Moses was the primary author of these words. Jesus himself referred to Deuteronomy as having Mosaic authorship, as did Paul, and as did the author of Hebrews. And so we balance these views by realizing that often we have the wrong understanding of how the Bible came about. Uh, Unfortunately, and I don't mean any offense to anyone who has any family members or friends who are Mormons or any Mormons in the audience, but many evangelicals have the view of writing down scripture that Mormons do, which is there was a man who had a direct bat phone line to God who wrote down whatever God told him. And that's not how the Bible came about. 
When we uh, have a building and we can have some Sunday seminars, one of the things I'm going to teach on is how the Bible came about. And it wasn't through that kind of writing down, right? It wasn't like how Joseph Smith wrote down the Book of Mormon. And so what we understand here is that Moses, plus these scribal authors who just simply gave some commentary on Moses' words, is what we have before us, and it's still the Word of God, and we're excited for it because it will point us uh, where we need to go. It'll point us to Christ. Okay, so that's the who. Second, where did this take place? Well, the text says, beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Erevah. So if we're looking at a map, everybody can look up on the screen there. You've got the Dead Sea is that small body of water there. Up above it, the even smaller body of water is the Sea of Galilee or, or Lake Kinneret. And then you've got the Mediterranean Sea over on the side there. Now, this is where they're at. The little flags on the, the right side, of the east side of the Jordan is Mount Nebo. And this is most likely where he was telling the people about... Um, uh, he was telling them Deuteronomy, basically. Now, the question is, is, well, what does this look like? If none of you have ever been there, just so you can understand it, it's basically the exact same size as from Vancouver down to Roseburg from I-5 to the coast. I think a lot of us who've never been to Israel, we have this tendency to blow everything up, you know, the Sea of Galilee. You could swim across the Sea of Galilee, right? Uh, probably not on a, on, a, on a stormy day because the waves do get very high there, um, but it's a lake in Oregon. It is not a sea. And so there you get some understanding of kind of where they're at. So they were basically hanging out somewhere around Eugene, about to go over uh, the Willamette into the other side, okay? There's some background for you. Some of you are like, oh man, now it, it seems so small in my mind. That's okay. Moses throws in this secondary uh, piece of information. He says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, if we're not careful, we just skip right past this too quickly and we miss the humanity of Moses. You're going to see this all throughout Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses is saying here, hey guys, it should have taken us 11 days not 40 years, right? He's, he's throwing a little snarky jab into his people. And you're going to see Moses doing this throughout. Some of the comments he makes, you're like, wow, touchy much, right? But this is the reality. He was a human man leading God's people. And so he wanted them to understand, man, you were uh, able to come into this 11 days after we left the mountain. Uh, but because of your hardened hearts, we weren't. And so that's why he makes this comment. Now, just so you can see it a little bit, here are some pictures that Kelly took when we were over in Israel uh, 11 years ago now. This is out towards the wilderness. They didn't have that nice road that they could walk along there. It was all just that sandy, dry country, okay? Does not look very inhabitable or fun. Now, this next picture is kind of hard to see because we were at Mount Nebo when it was sunset. But it's kind of funny to me because if you look at this picture, even though it's hard to see, it kind of looks like Oregon, <laughs> And the reality was, that's what you saw. You were going from uh, Death Valley over to the Willamette Valley. And you can imagine how sad poor Moses was going, but 40 years and now I don't get to go into the promised land. But that's where it was. And so this sets your understanding of what was going on. Third, when did it occur? Well, the setting of the speech is, as he says here in the text, the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month after leaving Egypt or after uh, leaving um, the Exodus. And so this is emphasizing the fact that they'd wandered again because of that hardness of heart. Now the style of the book, as we'll get into in a little bit, it's much like ancient Near East treaties. And so we most likely know that this was written uh, at the bare minimum no later than 1300 BC. Some people argue that it was written even later than that, but we're going to leave it right there. Fourth, what is Deuteronomy? And I think this is the most important part of the who, what, where, when, and why. And you might be thinking, Hans, too many facts, I'm bored, just stay with me here, because this part is extremely important. What is Deuteronomy? As we've already seen, it's the written record of a speech done in a story or narrative form. So it's both a speech, but there's also a story wrapped around it that we have to be careful to see. And it has the nickname of being a second set of laws. Uh, this is what Deuteronomy means. Deutero is second. Onama is law. Okay? And so Deuteronomia is where the Greek word means second law. And it comes from this spot in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, 18. There is a section where it talks about the kings of Israel. Deuteronomy isn't very friendly to the idea of a monarchy. 
because God is their king. But should they put a king in place, one of the laws in Deuteronomy is that the king who sits on the throne of his kingdom, in order to stay within the will of God every day, he should write until he has a copy of this book. He should write down the laws of Israel. I know a couple pastor friends who've actually taken this on themselves and they write out the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, not in order to follow them under the Mosaic law, but to understand God's character more. And this uh, king was supposed to do that and then at the end it would be approved by the Levitical priests. And so in the Greek translation of this Hebrew, that copy word is actually stated as second law. And so the name, the nickname, second law comes to us as Deuteronomy. So it's actually kind of funny. We have a wrong name for the book in English. But what this is is so interesting. And just as a total side note, and I might do this a lot today, total side note, how awesome would it be to have leaders in our country who would sit down and write out God's law in order to memorize it and rule by it? That's what we should be praying for for our leaders, to do this. And we're going to find that throughout Deuteronomy, that there are things that back then it seems like, oh, that's not contemporary, that's not helpful for us. But truly, they are things that can be moved into 2018 and help us. But I find that many contemporary Christians have no desire to read Deuteronomy. I didn't. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Um, But the reason is for the same misunderstanding of what it is, that it's a second law. Many Christians, myself included from a few years ago, might say, well, Deuteronomy is a law and Christians aren't under the law anymore, so why read it? But perhaps the most important thing that I want you to gain from this discussion of context this morning is that really Deuteronomy and really all of the Old Testament, it's aiming to do something that we rarely give it credit for. We often have a false dichotomy between grace and law. And we make the Old Testament into a document that says God told the Jews that they were to be saved by their actions of religious devotion and keeping the law. And so we as Christians, saved by grace, wrongly cast it aside as useless. But if we look carefully at the Old Testament, and especially Deuteronomy, we quickly realize that this is not what the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is saying at all. Let me show you what I mean. Here's how many people interpret the Old Testament. The common view is the Pentateuch, the first five books, it is the Mosaic law that Moses received what we have in our Bibles on the mountain and that the purpose is to teach Israel the law. And so therefore, we as New Testament believers, we can discard it because it's the law. We don't need it. We're under grace. Now, how many of you honestly would say, well, that's kind of the the view that I've always had? Raise your hand few people. Some of you are like, what's the trick, Hans? What's the trick question? Okay. Now, this is, this is not necessarily totally wrong because it contains, within the Pentateuch, it does contain statements of the Mosaic law. But if we look at what is actually spoken, it's this, that the Mosaic law was given to Israel because of their sin in worshiping the golden calf. And the fullness of the Mosaic law was more lengthy than the Pentateuch. And it's not one in the same. Let me put it another way. The Pentateuch was written about the Mosaic law. It is not what was delivered by God to Moses. Does that make sense? The Pentateuch was written about the Mosaic law that God gave to Moses. It is not the exact one-to-one copy of what the Mosaic law was. The Pentateuch was written down later about that Mosaic law. And so the purpose of the Pentateuch is given to those under the law who know that they can't be saved by it to point them to the new covenant hope that they should have. Now, if we get that and understand that, all of a sudden the Pentateuch becomes a lot better to read, doesn't it? We don't sit there with shame and guilt going, man, I can't follow any of these. Praise God, Jesus came, so I don't have to. We realize that the whole point of the Pentateuch is, my goodness, I can't follow any of these. Thank God, Jesus came, right? It's not telling us to follow it. It's saying, you can't. You can't earn your salvation by your own works. Don't try. These guys tried. Read the story. It didn't go very well. So look to the hope of a new covenant. And we'll see that all throughout this. 
The Pentateuch was written with the purpose of helping the Jews know that the Mosaic law was not the answer, but rather that it pointed them to the need for a better, newer covenant hope. For example, turn with me to the right to Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Some of you are probably still writing that down. I'll leave it there. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Moses is telling the people under the law that are trying to follow the Mosaic law and failing badly. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Because he knew that they'd get driven out because they were hard-hearted. And he says, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, And obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. How so? Verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That sounds pretty New Testament, doesn't it? You see, the whole point of the Pentateuch was you can't keep the Mosaic law. We're trying. It doesn't work. So let me point you to the fact that God needs to do something to change your heart. Guys, if you've become a Christian and you were like, okay, now I'm a Christian, now I'm going to just try harder, I'm going to white-knuckle this puppy, oh man, if you're not in flames already, I am shocked. You are an amazingly holy person. The whole point is when you become a Christian, you recognize your need for God's grace to change and regenerate your heart by his Holy Spirit because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So that you can follow and obey him, not perfectly, because we're not with the Lord yet, but in growing fashion. The authors and scribes included much of the law of Moses throughout the Pentateuch. And for that, we look at it and we say, okay, it's the Mosaic law. No, it's not. It's about the Mosaic law. And much of the Mosaic law is in it. But it helps us greatly to understand God, and we're thankful for that. But in the midst of all of it, it's always pointing us to the need for the new covenant through Jesus Christ. John Salehammer uh, I'm a big fan of him. He's, a, uh, he's uh, passed away a couple years ago, professor and theologian from the West Coast here. He put it this way in his book on the Pentateuch. He said, The Pentateuch itself was not written to teach Israel the law. The Pentateuch was addressed to a people living under the law and failing at every opportunity. The Pentateuch looks beyond the law of God to his grace. And the purpose of the Pentateuch is to teach its readers about faith and hope in the new covenant. What the law of God originally was, and I hope to show you still is, was the gracious gift that God had already provided to a graciously chosen people. He'd already chosen Israel. Guys, how much activity had Israel done in order for God to go, oh, they're my people, I choose them for my team? Zero, probably even negative. And yet God, in his grace, chose them before any activity And then said to them, now be my people. We similarly, as the church, as we'll see, are to be like that. Chosen by grace. Given God's law of love by grace. Called to abide under that law of Christ. Not the Mosaic law. The Christ law. By grace. And so this understanding is new and different I think, for many of us. In Genesis 18, 19, this is very similar to what God did with Abraham. How much had Abraham done in order to earn God's grace? Nothing at all. He was a righteous man among many unrighteous people, but he was an idolater. He worshiped a pagan god with his family, and God called him out of that. And so we see in Genesis 18, 19, I quote it to you guys often. Look at what it says. God says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
The Mosaic law was added to this later, and we'll go through this in the next few months as we go through these chapters. But Abraham was already loved. Abraham was already chosen. And God's call to walk in righteousness and justice was not, I repeat, not to earn God's love. But it was a wonderful message of how Abram and his true offspring, offspring could respond to God's already present love. And so this also answers not only the what is Deuteronomy, but the why question. Why was Deuteronomy given? It was given to show Israel and the whole world the incredible need for God's gracious redeeming grace. Through Moses' explanation of the law, we will see that he was already looking to the greater hope of Jesus Christ. He just didn't know his name was Yeshua. Well, that is the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why of the context of Deuteronomy. And hopefully that paints the picture. The next question, though, I think we should ask ourselves is, why is it important to study Deuteronomy? Why is it important to study Deuteronomy? Well, because of this. You can write this down. Deuteronomy will increase our understanding of God and ourselves. Now, you could say this about any book in the Bible, true. But as I want to show you here, I think Deuteronomy is a a special, special book. Years ago, when I was asked to be a deacon, I think it's about 17 years ago now, the pastor I was meeting with asked me if I had read through the whole Bible. You know, pretty good question for a person who they're going to put in the position of deacon. And I replied that I had, but there were parts of the Bible that I didn't know very well and had only read through in a cursory way. And I think I said something along the lines of, you know, like Deuteronomy. Nobody reads Deuteronomy, right? Now, I'm sure in my ignorance, he probably laughed at me. But what's so sad about my own ignorance was that I had no idea how important the book of Deuteronomy is to the rest of the Bible, to understanding God, and even to understanding myself and others as disciples within the church. And so I want to show you seven reasons. Seven, the number of perfection, right? If I ever get six on a list, I'm like, i got to think of one more, right? Seven reasons this morning that I believe studying Deuteronomy will be a blessing to us. The first one is that Deuteronomy opens up our understanding to the mission of God and his people. It opens up our understanding to the mission of God and his people. If we think through the storyline of the Bible, we see that God's mission is to destroy the work of Satan, crush the head of the serpent by bringing mankind back into a unified relationship with him, with God. And God did this through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He sent his son as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of all mankind. And in so doing, God inaugurated his kingdom and will come again to judge the living and the dead and fully establish his reign. And this fullness of the storyline of the Bible has in the midst of it, as part of his plan, building up a people that can dwell as strangers and aliens in the middle of the surrounding nations. A people that can dwell in the midst of the kingdom of darkness and by the way that they live, the way that they love one another, and by the truth that they proclaim with their mouths after they've shown it by their actions, they can show that they follow and are citizens of the kingdom of light. That's part of the plan. Now, there are so many ways in which the nation of Israel and the church are completely different. They were a people based on ethnicity, under the Mosaic law, looking for the promise of a piece of land and a temple over and above a Messiah. The church can claim none of those characteristics. The church is totally different on all of those accounts. Israel was looking to the hope of a new covenant while the church exists within it. And for these reasons, the church and Israel are completely different. But the one thing that the church and Israel do share is that the intent for both people groups, the church being both Jew and Gentile, the Israelites primarily being only ethnic Jews, The intent was that they were to be God's people, a people that walked in covenant faithfulness and in so doing showed the world who this God, Yahweh, is. Now the difference is that when they tried, they failed because they tried to do it by religious right, by religious work. The church is different because we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit placed in our midst and individually. 
Look with me at a few comparisons between the people of Israel in Deuteronomy and who the church is supposed to be. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. And look at what God calls Israel to be. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? Now pause with me for a second, because I want to share with you just a little bit of my testimony. I used to wonder constantly, okay, the Old Testament is all the law. We got to get rid of the law because we're under grace. Then why does the psalmist in Psalm 119 constantly say, the Lord, Lord, I love your law. I want to follow your precepts. I want to do your law. And I used to think, well, maybe law is just another word for gospel or Bible or something. And so really, I just, you know, I love the story of Jesus that gets me out of hell. But the law, that's kind of old fashioned and that's for the Jews, right? But then I'd read Jesus and he'd say, no part of the law is going to be dismissed. Anybody who teaches to dismiss the law, ooh, they're in big trouble, my paraphrase. And then he'd say, those who stand on my word are like people who stand on a rock. And when the rains come, the house doesn't fall. But those who don't do what I say, don't follow my rules, well, their house is going to fall down. And I think to myself, well, wait a minute, it still sounds like he's talking about law. Well, the reality was, he was. Jesus is still our king and he still has a law that we exist under. It's just not the Mosaic law. And if I've confused you, great, we're going through Deuteronomy and I'll clarify it. But we have to understand that a whole hawk dismissal of the law is not what grace means. Grace is room to repent to follow God in the fullness of his law of righteousness and justice and love. And we'll see how that all plays out throughout Deuteronomy. Because we, as the church, still have a very similar call to what Deuteronomy 4 says about Israel. Well, here's another one. Turn to Deuteronomy 7, verse 5. As he's talking to them about getting rid of idolatry, he says, But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. In other words, get rid of the paganism in your land. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? This is from 1 Peter 2.9, New Testament. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is from Matthew 5. We read it earlier. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, this definitely does have an individual tone to it, but he's also saying you, plural. And we teach our kids, let my light shine. I'm going to be a moral, obedient child. That's good. It's not bad. But it's not the fullness of what's meant here. We, the church, are supposed to be a light, a city, the new Jerusalem shining on a hill. What does John the Revelator say? He says, I, I went and I saw the new Jerusalem. And what was it? It was the bride of Christ. Another name for? The church. The church is similar to Israel in all these ways. And so we see that Israel was to be a model for the nations. And they failed. But the eventual church was to take up that mantle, the true offspring of Abraham, not just those ethnically Jewish, but those who followed Yahweh from a pure heart and laid down their life and said, we need you to circumcise our hearts, to change us, to regenerate us. We need you to send the Messiah to save us. And in so doing, we then are called to bring forth righteousness and justice in the way we live. And so... Going through Deuteronomy will help us understand the mission of God and the mission of God's people. Secondly, 
It opens up our understanding of the rest of the Bible. Deuteronomy is quoted throughout the Old Testament. And the core of Deuteronomy, the great Shema, is arguably the most important text to the Hebrew people upon which the rest of the Bible is built. Twice a day, they would repeat, Shema, O Yisrael. They'd repeat the whole prayer to remind them of the core of Deuteronomy. And so if we do not understand Deuteronomy, we can hardly understand most of the rest of the Old Testament. The prophets, for example, if you think that the prophets are about foretelling the future and figuring out when the rapture is going to happen, you miss the entire point of what the prophets are about. The prophets are actually something totally different. They're basically a filing of lawsuits, divine lawsuits against the people of Israel for their breach of covenant for not following and obeying the law written in Deuteronomy. And so to understand those books, the prophets, you must first understand this book and what God is calling his people to be. To understand all the period of the monarchs and the kings in Israel and the reforms of King Hezekiah to fight against idolatry and King Josiah, you must understand this book. You can write this down. We don't have time to go there today, but you can write these references down. 2 Kings 22, 9 through 13 and 23, 1 through 4. Go read them on your own or read both chapters, 22 and 23. Josiah comes to power after uh, Manasseh and, and then his son, and so he's uh, Manasseh's grandson. Manasseh built idolatry all over Israel, even in the temple grounds. And so Josiah comes up and his priests stumble on this book of the law. And most people agree that that book of the law was not the Pentateuch, it was Deuteronomy in particular. That's the predominant theological opinion. And so when they read through Deuteronomy, it forced him to conviction. And brought him to a place where he tore his robes and cried out and said, we must repent. And he instituted reforms to call people to righteousness. If the kings of Israel needed Deuteronomy to call people to follow after God, do you think it's a good book for us to go through? It's going to be powerful. As for the New Testament, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy ten times in the Gospels. Second only to his quoting from Psalms. Overall, Deuteronomy is quoted 80 times in the New Testament. When Jesus needed to confront Satan, all of the scripture he used to refute the lies of the enemy came from one book. Guess which book it was? Deuteronomy. When Jesus was asked to summarize the greatest commandment, guess which book he turned to? Deuteronomy. If Deuteronomy was Jesus' go-to text, do you think it's good for us to study it? Third, it opens up our understanding of God's character. When we look into the law of God dealing with oxen, how many of you have oxen? Raise your hand. (laughs) Land boundaries, how many of you are fighting over where your fence goes with your neighbor? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Repent if you're doing that. Dealing with slavery, well, we got rid of that a long time ago. Praise God for that. We look at this and we think, well, very few of us see that this text is even useful or readily applicable in 2018. Why would we study it? But what is amazing about the law of God is that when we look at it from an underlying principle perspective, it's often extremely applicable. Look with me at what seems to be a pretty random text in Deuteronomy 25.4. Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. All right, everybody go home and apply this today. We'll see you later. Some of you have a feed sack on your cat or your dog at home. You're like, I'm trying to apply it. (laughs) Moses seems to be concerned that oxes get enough food. Oxen, oxes, oxes, I don't even know, oxen. See, that's how much of a city boy I am. But the reality is, is that there's an underlying principle of God's character of being a provider. He cares about provision for his creatures, and it's unfair and cruel to make one of his creatures work at treading out grain but not being able to receive the fruitfulness from it. Why why would we do that? We're made in the image of God. We're supposed to be just as generous and provisional as he is. Because the oxen, one might say, well, if he eats it, he's taking away from my bottom line of profit. You see, The response to this that fights against it stems from selfishness and greed. And God wants us to be generous in his image. That's the principle. Don't mistreat those working to serve you. How do you apply this in 2018? 
fight against slave labor. All the stuff we talked about with IJM. You can take this and apply it from a principle level to make you more in the image of God. We know this is what he was saying because Paul later uses this same passage to exhort the Corinthian church that it is right for them to provide for his material needs while he ministers to them. Corinth was saying, you're a pain, Paul. And Paul says, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. Do I say these things on human authority, he says? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And my response, if I was a Corinthian, would be like, Paul, what does that have to do with the price of grain for oxen? You know, the price of tea in China. What are you talking about here, dude? But what he's saying is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He says, it's not wrong for me to ask of you some provision. You need to help me because I'm ministering to you. He gets it from the principal level. And so we apply the law in the same way. Guys, if you read the law and you go, I don't get it, keep digging. Figure out what the underlying character of God point is and then figure out how to apply that. And I'll show you how to do that as we go through it. Within the law, as boring and out of date as it seems on first look, if we strive to understand it on a principle level and in context, we understand God's character better. What a great God that would make sure even his oxen have enough food. How much more does he love you? Well, number four, it opens up our understanding of God as king and ourselves as his citizens. One of the best ways to view the book of Deuteronomy is through the lens of, as I said earlier, an ancient Middle Eastern treaty. There are fancy names for it. One's called a vassal treaty. One's called a suzerain treaty. All these were covenants that were constructed because a king had come into a people, conquered them, and made this people their subject. And so if a king from Babylon or Assyria would come in and conquer a people, they would arrange a covenant with those people that said, this is who I am, this is how we'll operate, and this is how you'll follow me. And if you don't do that, here are the blessings and the cursings. So Deuteronomy is structured very similarly. It has an intro identifying the speaker and the addressees. It has a historical understanding of the relationship between the parties. Then it has general and detailed laws and stipulations about how to live. Blessings and cursings that follow obedience and disobedience in the covenant. And then the witnesses to the covenant. That's the book of Deuteronomy. It is a treaty between God and his people. And if you think about it, we need that treaty, don't we? A people completely rebellious to the king invaded us with his love. And by God's grace, he conquered us on the cross by the blood of his son. He raised victorious as our king, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So we, as Christians, we enter into a covenant relationship, knowing who he is, knowing who we are, wanting to follow him, realizing blessing comes from obedience. And we have this cloud of witnesses before us that demonstrate that we are one with God. It's a beautiful picture. Viewing this book through this structure helps us see God's relationship to us as our King and Sovereign Lord. But more importantly, we remember, unlike most ancient Near East kings, the God we serve didn't conquer to bring oppression. He conquered to bring freedom. And he did so out of his grace. Deuteronomy points us to the fact that we want to serve a king that is so wonderful. Number five, it opens up our understanding of Jesus. The book of Deuteronomy points directly toward Jesus. Throughout the book, Moses is painted as a mediator between Yahweh and Israel, but this does not go well. Moses fails at times and wrongly represents God. Guys, one of the first people I'm going to hug when I get to heaven is it's, it's going to be Moses. And I'm going to go up to him, and I know he'll be in God's presence, so he's probably okay by now. But I'm still going to hug him and say, it's okay, brother. It's, it's really okay. I'm sorry. I know. I know. It's okay. Moses needs some mercy. He needs some grace. Because he does. He fails at times and misrepresents God. It gets so bad that at one point, God reveals that his consequence was not to, get in, to enter the promised land. And so the book will end with this unfulfilled mediator role, leaving it open to a better mediator. 
The author of Hebrews picks right up on this perfectly, and he says in Hebrews 9.15, Therefore Jesus, he, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the perfect mediator. Moses himself could not fulfill his own law, but Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. So much so that he would be pictured as the spotless lamb that was sacrificed on the altar of the cross for your sin and for mine. Jesus did nothing. He sinned in no way against the Father. And yet he loved you so much. He loved me so much that he took our place on the altar of sacrifice and gave his blood so that we might be joined together with the Father. Jesus walked in perfect obedience loved him with all that he was, was a walking illustration of the great Shema. And he purchased us back from our sin to unite us with the Father. And so to accept Christ as Savior is to proclaim that you needed that sin offering and that you need it today and that you'll need it for all eternity and that you accept Christ's fulfillment of that role. In addition to the role of mediator of a new covenant, a new treaty between you and God, Deuteronomy prophesies that a prophet like Moses would come that would perfectly speak on behalf of God. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. And just if you don't know it, Horeb is another name for Sinai, okay, where they got the law. When you said, he says, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. By the end of the book, however, the scribal editors let us know that by the time they wrote down Deuteronomy, by the time they were viewing Deuteronomy, no prophet had come. This is Deuteronomy 34.10, after the death of Moses. It says, and there has not arisen, meaning in the whole time since the death of Moses, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. When you realize that Jesus is that prophet, come in the likeness of Moses. A better than Moses, you read the Gospels totally differently. Moses was going to be killed by who? Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh was trying to kill all the baby boys. Jesus was going to be killed by who? By Herod. Because Herod was trying to kill all the baby boys. Why? Kingdom of darkness fighting kingdom of light. Where did Jesus go to be saved? To Egypt. Where did Moses go to be saved? He was taken up. By the Egyptians. What did Moses do to begin his role as mediator? He went back to his people, the Israelites. What did Jesus do to begin his role as mediator? He went back to his people, the Israelites. In Matthew 5, Jesus ascends a mountain, just as Moses did, to give a clarification of the true law of God called the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of his life, much like Moses, but in victory, he ascends a mountain just like Moses did in order to give his people one final word. Go conquer in my name. Make disciples. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. I'll be with you always. Totally different than Moses. When you get these and you understand this, you start to read things like Matthew seven twenty eight. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You read sections like this and you think, man, they think he's the new Moses. And they're right. The Gospels come alive when you understand Deuteronomy. Well, sixth, it opens up our understanding of ourselves as obedient disciples. If Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and called us to walk as his disciples, then we must indeed discern the Old Testament law through the filter of the gospel, through Jesus' words. You've heard that it was said, this law. I tell you, this is what it truly means. Jesus taught us to read it through a filter of righteousness and justice, the true heart of the Father. Unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't get this. And they kept pushing the legal aspect And as we will see as we go through Deuteronomy, 
In a sense, that's understandable because it was out of their zeal for God. They thought they were following God with everything, and yet they simply missed the filter of Jesus Christ. If we read Deuteronomy, we can start to understand the Mosaic law through the filter of the gospel. And we can realize that we no longer need the ceremonial pieces, the temple, the sacrifice, because Jesus is those things. But we start to see the principles of the law that help us to walk in obedience. Lastly, it opens up our understanding of what it is to love others. Coming off of Ephesians, this is going to be awesome because the two tie in so well together. Knowing that the prophets were indicting the people of Israel based upon their disobedience, their disobedience to the law of God, and knowing that the prophets talked often of treating one another justly, our understanding of bringing forth justice in social settings can only be enhanced by understanding Deuteronomy. We do not discard the idea of social justice as a neoliberal, unbiblical idea. It is core to who Jesus was. Without the gospel, it's worthless. But with the gospel, it's the very mission of God's people. And we will see that. And what we will see from these last two the understanding of ourselves as obedient disciples and the understanding of what it is to love others is that true abundant life comes from obedience and covenant faithfulness to the heart of God. If we become the fullness of humanity, most human, as we were intended to be, it only comes when we reflect Christ and obey the Father. And we do so only by loving him first. And how do we love him? We love him because he first loved us. If we don't understand this combination of listening, hearing, and loving, and leading to obedience, we will find ourselves locked in shame-based legalism that we can never live up to. This is the gospel, that God first loved us, that he chose us before the foundations of the world, that he sent his son not because we deserved it, but in spite of ourselves. And if we can hear that and understand God's heart and allow his regenerative work of his Holy Spirit to change us, then we will want to respond by loving him through obedience. And that will cycle back through as that video at the beginning showed us perfectly. This is the correct view of the law. And I hope to cement that for you. Tim Keller said this. He said, when we think we can win God's approval through our moral performance and obedience, it becomes a crushing burden. And then we are under the law. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, and that now we who believe in him are secure in God's love, then we naturally want to delight, resemble, and know the one who has done this. Church, if you are a person here who catches yourself looking at your watch five minutes after we start because, man, I don't have time for this. I got better things to do. You have to ask yourself, do you know the love of Jesus? Because the love of Jesus will call you to a place where you desire to devour his words, just as the psalmist said at the beginning. Read the gospel, understand the gospel, hear who God is, that he is one and that he gave of himself in his son to die for you. Understand the costliness of the blood of Jesus and you will want nothing more than to devote your entire life to the call of God's mission. This is what I hope for everyone in this church. This was what the statement that the narrator, Tim Mackey, made in the intro video. To listen is to love and to love is to listen which then includes obedience. Dear brothers and sisters of mission, if we can grow even slightly in our capacity to understand this truth through the study of Deuteronomy, it will be well worth it. This is why we are studying this book. This is why we're studying the fifth book of Moses. And so our vision for this study of Deuteronomy, once we move past all this context and the facts and figures and things behind it, to help us understand it, our vision as a leadership for Deuteronomy is this. I want us to see, and we want us to see, God's call to covenant faithfulness. To listen, to love, and obey.
As we begin this book, I want to acknowledge that it can be frustrating and possibly even boring to read through many of the laws without understanding their context, without understanding these names or the geography or the background or the use of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. It can get boring. But what we hope as your leaders to do as we lead you through this book is to help you understand it in its fullness so that you can apply it to your life. So as we go through each piece of this book, here's your first point of application. I want you to read Deuteronomy with me. Can you do that this week? Can you simply pick up your Bible and open to Deuteronomy and start reading? It's not just my job to read on Sundays. It's yours to read throughout the week and to let the Holy Spirit convict you and guide you and change you. I want you, when you read the great Shema, to not only hear, hear, O Israel, but to hear, hear, O brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship. I want you to read it over and over and over. And you're thinking, Ephesians was a lot more fun, Hans. Deuteronomy will be too. Read it over and over and over during the time we are in it. Get intimately familiar with this book. If Jesus was intimately familiar with his book and we want to grow into the image of Jesus, what do you think we should do? Become familiar with this book. Study the cross-references we bring up and grow in your understanding of the full narrative of Scripture. And so that's your first point of application. Begin reading this book this week. But secondly, your second point of application is this. This week, recognize that we serve a God of grace. Long before there was law, there was loving grace. And in the midst of law, it was still loving grace, protecting Israel until the Messiah, the hope of heaven, could come. Through Jesus Christ, the hope of Moses and the Israelites, and really all humanity, he has come in the flesh. Jesus died for your sins and mine, and all of Deuteronomy is pointing to that fact. So, dear church, I want to ask you, have you lost sight of the gospel? Have you lost sight of the costliness of what God did to save you from your sins, from death and hell? This week, I want to challenge you to meditate on the fact that God so loved you that he gave his only son. He didn't have a million sons. He had one. And he gave him to draw you into relationship with him. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he is God, and now he calls you into himself so that you might understand and know his love and that might propel you into a loving response in which you walk in his ways and image him to a lost and dying world. Your point of application this week is to accept that truth, to rest in the gospel truth that you are loved by God before you do anything and that love will then propel you into purposeful obedience. This week, I would ask us to purpose to listen, to love, and obey.